Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. In my view, one way or another, every leader, I don't care what your level is, you're trying to create change in one way or another, improve something, make it better, move it forward, get creative. However, I find that organizations can be extremely slow to adopt change, even when the logic for doing so is incredibly compelling. And I'm thinking about a client that I'm working with at the moment, where the reason for transformation is astronomically crystal clear. The adoption rate, though, however, eh, leaves a little bit to be decided, uh, desired. So in all of this, I'm going to argue we're missing something. So today I want to talk about one, what is it that we really know from empirical evidence about how change happens? And then number two, what is it that you need to be doing as a leader to create change? And then three, the most important part, which is how do you actually cascade that to an organization? So you get where you believe the organization needs to go. My guest today, uniquely qualified on this topic, is Greg Sattel. He's co-founder of Change OS, which is a transformation and change advisory business. Keynote speaker around the world, lecturer at Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania, successful entrepreneur, former executive, and author of the book we're talking about today, Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. Now, Greg's prior book, Mapping Innovation, got a lot of positive hits, and his work has been featured in all the places you'd like to see it, like Harvard Business Review and Forbes and Barron's and Fast Company and Inc., and on the list goes. Um, Greg's job is to help organizations overcome resistance to change and build a better future, and he's consistently ranked as a top innovation blogger, named as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers to follow. Now, Greg has not always been a consultant. He was a former senior executive at Publicist Group, one of the world's largest marketing service companies. A global citizen, he spent 15 years living and working in Eastern Europe, where, among other things, he managed a leading news organization during Ukraine's Orange Revolution. Talking about a timely topic, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Wanda. So, Greg, one of the arguments that I would make about you, you can agree or disagree, is that you've seen change from all sides. You've seen it from political movements. You've seen it from the marketing and advertising. You've seen it from inside an organization. You've seen it from innovation. You've seen it as an entrepreneur. And now you're writing about it. So it seems to me you got a full view of change. Yeah. So if we can spend a little bit of time on that, um, I, I spent 15 years in Eastern Europe in post-communist countries, starting in Poland and then Ukraine, a little bit in Russia and a little bit in Turkey. But Poland in the late 90s, every, every initiative was a transformational initiative. Everything had to be changed. The entire country was being run out of the Marriott Hotel because <laughs> even multinational corporations. And I knew somebody who, who worked for Caterpillar and he 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 flew to he was a, an executive at caterpillar he flew to warsaw to get um operations started there 
And he gets off the plane, he goes to the Marriott, and he uh, goes down to the gym to take a sauna uh, to sort of work out his, his jet lag. And he comes up and he says to his partner, okay, I found our partner. Because every, no matter how big the business was, everybody, there was, at the time, there was only one major hotel, which was the Marriott. There was only, um, and there was no class A office space. So everybody would get an office at the Regis Center, which was located in the Marriott. And they would go to the restaurants there and they would go to the gym there and the nightclub there. And everybody they needed to meet with was doing the, the same thing. Yeah. So um, all of that change, it, it was an incredible way to see change almost with time-lapse photography. Everything was transforming before your eyes. And then later when I had that experience in the Orange Revolution, I, uh, I learned that there was a way to actually make it happen. And later, of course, I met my friend Sir Ja, who had developed this methodology for uh, essentially overthrowing a country. And then having been involved with so many transformational initiatives over the years, both as a CEO and as an advisor, I thought that would, it seemed to me that that could work in an organizational environment. And that's really what what Cas- the Cascades research was about, was taking those methodologies that we know work in a social or political context and applying them to the collective dynamics of an organization. Okay. All right. So before I scare any of the CEOs listening to the podcast, we're not talking about revolution and coups. We're not talking about somebody pushing you out necessarily, but we are talking about what we know from watching real dramatic change happen, moving a large number of people from one perspective to another perspective and executing on it how those principles apply inside large organizations. So it was a little bit of a joke that we're not talking about a coup. Maybe we need a few coups, but that's not the purpose here. Well, I do think when you when you look at a lot of the initiatives, and I loved what you said in the beginning, a great example that I like to point to is lean manufacturing, which was this methodology that arose in the early 1980s. Um, and everybody knows that it works. And it it's successful at increasing productivity everywhere it, it's adopted. But after 40 years, adoption rates are stuck around 15%. And we see that with all of these things that you, you if you go to innovation con- conferences, you would think everybody's using and applying lean manufacturing, agile development, where actually these things are not being adopted and we're not applying what we know. So when you, when you talk about creating a movement or creating a revolution, how do you get it from a small group of people who, uh, with an idea, how do you get that adopted and scale within an organization that is very, very similar to, um, to right a now. movement? And you fall into the same pitfalls, specifically... Think about how people talk about changes within an org- organization. They talk about, they talk about, they actually talk about it as if it's a revolution. They talk about disruption. They go to the agile, you know, training and they come back and they say, we have to stop everything right now. Everything has to change this minute. 
where people don't like to be disrupted. Uh, change always needs to be built on common ground. And the first step is to create a sense of safety around the change conversation so that people feel can feel good about it, not, not disrupted and scared. Scared, right. Yeah, I don't think people adopt much of anything when they're afraid. In I fact, we know from neurological uh, research, they narrow their view and 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 folk and and are are much less able to take in new information. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the question for the day is how do I take a small group of people with let's assume a brilliant idea that we know is going to work and generate results and get it cascaded throughout the organization so everybody's going to adopt it. Now before I go on so you had 10 principles on this. I want to talk about those. But I'm more intrigued first by a statement you've made, which is there are a few things we know for fact about how change happens. We know it empirically. We know it from observing in the world. Kind of walk us through the first one. And one of them you say is change comes on the outside and it always meets resistance. Tell me about that. Right. So just to, to put a pin on, on how you introduce this, we have decades of research, hundreds of studies. And they all, and they largely agree with with each other from change in every context. Um, the first two studies were uh, on the most famous one was on hybrid corn, mm-hmm. and the the second uh, one was on uh, doctors adopting tetracycline, mm-hmm. and they were able to follow these very very closely. These are sort of the seminal studies, and what they found with the hybrid corn. The first ones to adopt it were ones, those were the farmers in Iowa that most, uh, most traveled to Des Moines. So it, it came from somewhere else. And same thing with the, with the doctors in, in tetracycline. Um, they, they, they first learned of it from outside the, the, their immediate community. And then when they bring it back, it always incurs resistance. If it didn't, it, it wouldn't be change. It would be the status quo. And so that's the first thing that you need to think about. How are people going to resist? When we sit down with an organization, the, one of the first things we do is we go through a resistance inventory uh, because we know people uh, resist for, in, in, uh, for five different reasons. There's five different categories of resistance that are pretty consistent. Four of them are completely rational. Lack of trust, um, uh, change fatigue, which is uh, which was a real problem even before COVID, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously uh, even a bigger one now. Right. Uh, comedi- competing incentives or, or commitments. So competing incentive is something external. Uh, people are being paid for one thing and being asked to do something something very different, or uh, sometimes we have, we make competing incentives ourselves. For instance, we tell ourselves we want to delegate more, but uh, we like to see ourselves as hands-on managers. Well, those two things are in conflict and, yeah. and that needs to be resolved. And the fourth rational um, form of resistance is uh, is switching costs, which there's always going to be some, some switching right. costs. 
So one of the most important things to do is to sit down and, and think about who's going to resist that way, how, uh, what form that resistance is going to take, and what ways can we mitigate it uh, so that we're anticipating those issues, building strategies around them, and not simply reacting when they, when they happen. And then the fifth uh, category is uh, not so rational. It's identity, dignity, and sense of self. We can ask people to be uh, to do different things or think different things, but we can't ask them to stop being who they think they are. Right. If they're a project manager and they say, I've been doing this for 20 years and I feel like I, I do a good job and I really care about the job I do and I'm proud of the job I do and I don't want to be told that I've been doing it wrong and I need to do it differently they're going to have a hard time adopting a methodology like Agile. And um, you're not going to convince them any, any different. So anytime, you, you, anytime you, you want to bring change to any context, there's always going to be some that are going to hate the idea uh, and they're going to work to undermine it in ways that are dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. And that's just a fact you have to do it. And it doesn't make them bad people. Human beings form attachment to people, ideas, and other things. And when those are threatened, we tend to, we tend to act in ways that don't reflect our best self. Right. And we all do it. Anybody who's ever been in a relationship or part of a family knows that. <laughs> Yes, when our attachments get threatened, we will justify just about any action we take as defending something that is worthy of defending. I totally 100% agree with you. And you see it personally, you see it in work life as well. All right. So the change always comes from outside. Somewhere I go somewhere and I see something, understand something, learn something, adopt something. And it always meets a resistance. All right. Now, the second thing you say is that shifting the knowledge and the attitude isn't good enough. That won't get change. Why do you say that? This is, this is the famous cap gap that, that yes. shifts in knowledge and attitudes don't necessarily result in, in, in shifts in, uh, in, in practice. And again, we know this just from, from decades of studies that giving people the information doesn't mean they're, they're going to act on it. It right. doesn't mean you shouldn't give them the information, but, and, and this is again, one of the sort of fundamental fallacies of, of change management. Too often it's assumed to be related to persuasion mm -hmm. and it's not uh, large scale change is about collective dynamic. So if, if you're trying to apply persuasive methods, for instance, using emotive language. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're applying that to, um, to a, a personal conversation, people are more likely to be persuaded, right? But then what happens? They go back to their normal environment, and we know that the best indicator of things that we think and do are what the people around us think and do. Mm -hmm. They're going to you can fully convince them they're going to go back to their regular working environment and they're going to get convinced right back the other way. Okay. All so, right. And, 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 and we know even from personal, just because you know the chocolate brownie is bad for you doesn't mean you're not going to eat it. 
So if you're going to rely on a communication strategy to do the change work for you, you're most likely going to be disappointed. And that's come from somebody who spent a portion of his professional life inside a massive marketing communication services company. So I bet you've seen everyone that can come from that. It's an interesting idea, giving people knowledge, giving people, you know, sort of a sense of, you know, changing an attitude isn't enough. Because Awareness, you're getting desire, at, knowledge. Yeah, it's not going to do you much good. Okay. All right. Better to communicate effectively than not effectively. Yeah. But that's not not enough. That's not going to shape the collective dynamic. All right. So let's go to your fourth one, which is that ideas are propagated socially. It's what you were just saying. Let's do the third one. Okay. Third one then. About the (laughs) S-shaped curve. I was jumping ahead because you just teased that one. Well, because you're you're ahead of the class. Okay. Um, The S-shaped curve. This, again, we know from... Uh, and it's it's very very easy to measure, but uh, and 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 I think we we already joked about the the big launch event with yep. the S shaped curve. S shaped curve just means that change tends to start off very slowly, and uh, and then hits an inflection point, usually between ten and twenty percent. We even know when that inflection point comes and then accelerates exponentially. So there's no reason to do a big launch event. And that's really the key to making change work, understanding you don't have to convince everybody all at once. And getting off to a fast start doesn't mean the change is gonna happen any faster. Um, What those big launch events, what they're most likely to do is to trigger that resistance those people who hate the change and never want it to happen. Uh, you're, the trick to making change work is getting to that inflection point without incurring the resistance. Once you get past that inflection point, you can, you can start to begin to scale very, very quickly. But that's really the trick. Um, okay. when, we, when you look at agile and you look at lean manufacturing and you look at all these things and you say adoption rates uh, tend, to, tend to get stuck around 15%, well, guess what? That's your 10 They haven't hit that yeah. inflection point and they never got past, right. even after decades. All right. So this is why I say in a team of 10, 11, 12, that if you can get three people on board with you, you have a chance of carrying it through. That's your t- 20% mark. Mm-hmm. So uh, empirically, I observe this in teams. Until you get two or three other people who are on board in a modest-sized team, you're stuck. And you're saying that's what the data says as well. All right, so 10 to 20%. So no big launch events. Get your 10 to 20% adoption rate. Then you can do your big launch event um, and you don't incur all would, the resistance I, cost. I would, I would add... Um, to that three-person rule, yeah, it can work if you leave the other nine alone. Yes, right, right. I can't incur resistance. You keep reminding us. Right, it can work if 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 um, and you're actually beginning to to get success. Okay, that is that those three people out of twelve 
that's something you can start a project with and get out of the business of selling an idea and into the business of selling a success. Okay. okay. Um, but you, you always want to start with a majority. Okay. So those three people are a majority in a room of five. <laughs> you can eventually expand that majority out. But those three people with 12 people in the room, as soon as you're in the minority, you're going to feel immediate pushback. Okay. Um, and when I, when I speak to change professionals, every single time I get the same question. What happens when uh, you get people excited about change and then it just fizzles out? And the operative, the operative phrase is, you got them excited, meaning they already weren't yeah. excited. And it will always fizzle out. And, and very much to your point, Wanda, that's the key. Go to where the energy is. Don't try and build and maintain all the energy yourself. Go find the energy and start there. Okay, so I get this sense that I start with a small group who are naturally drawn to the idea, excited about it. I can create a majority in that small group. We can test, try, build momentum, have some successes. And then we give it, begin to expand out from there. But never try to go head to head with nine versus three. You're going to lose. The numbers are not in, in your favor. And then okay. that. Then you get to the point, to that last point about change being socially propagated. We adopt things that we see around us, that we see working. We look at the person next to us and they say, they're really doing well with that. Um, and, and we're going to adopt, and then we're, we're going to, we're going to be much, much more likely to adopt that. Um, that's what you want to do. You don't want to push people to change. You want to empower them to spread the change. Right. Very, very different. Okay. So empower to spread. All right. This reminds me of someone who's told this story on a podcast years ago. Bruce Regal is a name doing a change effort inside one of the businesses that he was responsible for. People didn't like, well, initially they forced it because he had the power to force it. And gradually people came to see that, wait, there's some benefit in this. And there's still a holdout collection of people who aren't really on board but one of those senior leaders comes to him and says, I don't like this model that you've created, but I'm tired of being rated as a C by your model. So I want to know what I need to do to get rated as an A by your model. I'm ready to now talk about it and do it. But it's that opting in to join, to being part of, as opposed to being forced to be part of. Right. Until you get to, you know, Generally, a good way to think about it is 25, 50, 25. Mm -hmm. So if you get to that initial 20, 25% where um, the next 50 will come pretty fast, right? I, I mean, assuming that, that, that you've had good results with the, that initial right. um, apostles group or enthusiast group or whatever you want to call them. And if you're not getting results, then you really have to question whether the change is a good idea. Yeah. And that's the idea of a keystone change, right. a, an initial project, um, not necessarily a quick or easy win. Often they take months or even longer, um, but it has a clear and tangible goal. It involves multiple stakeholders. So it's not like three guys in the IT department or something. Right. And it paves the way for future change. Uh, if you're not able to have an, a success there, and this is another reason 
why you don't want to engage everybody all at once. You only want to start with enthusiastic people because the enthusiastic group will be willing to work through the inevitable failures right. where if, if you bring in the skeptics um, or the uh, from the beginning who don't want it to work, the first failure, they're going to start dumping on it. Yeah. So you don't really want to involve them. You want people, you want to start with people who actually want it to work. Right. And if you can't have a success with them, you really need to question whether this is a good change. And there's nothing wrong with killing an initiative um, if, it's, if it's not working. Right. Right? Um, right. And in fact, your ability to do that will improve your credibility on the next initiative. Right. Um, but once you do get it to work, that next 50 will come pretty quickly. It becomes, first of all, it becomes a performance issue, right? Right. Those guys over there, they're, they're having a lot of success with that. Why aren't you adopting it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get to that last quarter, then you can, you know, you're, <laughs> once you're in the majority, then you really do, um, you know, Every transformation, not everybody's going to be able to come, come right. with you. Right. Some are, are going to see the writing on the wall and say, that's not for me, and go find something else to do. And, and some of them are, quite frankly, going to have to be removed. Okay. But that's, that comes at the, that's the end game. That's not how you start. All right. Well, we both agree that I think far too many leaders worry about the top 25% resistors at the very beginning, rather than worry about what's going to really be successful. Can we test it? Can we show it? And how do I get the middle 50% group wanting to be part of this? So I think you do have to think about the resistors, but we get too, I think we get too overwhelmed by them. In the very beginning, yeah, there, there's something very strange about human nature. Mm-hmm. When we have an idea we're really passionate about, we want to immediately go to people who hate it and try to convince them of it. And we all have the tendency to do it. I know I do. And it's, it's really, um, it, it's not a good idea, right? Those people don't want it. And, and you're, why waste time trying to convince people of, of something they don't want to be convinced of. I mean, anybody who's been married or had, has had kids knows how difficult it can be to persuade even a single person of something they don't want to be convinced of. If you're going to, um, if you're going to try and, and, and convince hundreds or thousands, I mean, that's, that's, that's very unlikely to be successful. One kind of, uh, mental trick that, I've found or, or strategy is understanding that there's two different types of values. Um, there are shared values and differentiating values. When we're passionate about something, we tend to focus on the differentiating values because that's what that's why we're passionate, because this thing is different. So people who are passionate about agile. They want to talk about the Agile Manifesto because mm-hmm. that's why they love Agile methodology. That's what they love about it. But if we're going to bring others in, we need to focus on shared value. Uh, so not you know the Agile Manifesto, but better projects done faster and cheaper. 
And it's that shift. Whenever, uh, Whenever you encounter somebody who's not on board, you always start to focus on the shared value, not the differentiating value. So that's what I mean by always starting from common ground. Okay. And easier to do that with a smaller group who are passionate about it, interested in it, and get some success. Okay. Well, with the smaller group you can you're that are already on board, you're going to tend to talk about the differentiating value. Right. It's when you go outside that group that it's important to focus on the shared value. So those three people in the group of of 12, you're going to be talking about the Agile Manifesto. You're going to be talking about what's different about this that you love. But when you when you go to explain it to people outside that core group, it's really important to, to be very, very um, intentional about shifting to shared value. And that's it. It rings true for me, but it's one I'm going to have to like contemplate and think about because I think our default is to do the differentiating values with our small cohort and then take that same differentiating value to everybody else and they shoot holes in it. And then we just exaggerate the differentiating values more as opposed to say, wait, we all have common values here. And you can see this play out politically. You can see this play out inside any change program in an organization. You can see it with a new methodology. You can see it everywhere. And and here's another trick. Mm -hmm. The best way to identify shared value Mm -hmm. is to listen to the skeptics. If you can listen to, uh, if you can listen to the people who hate the idea, and you can identify in a, sh- a shared value in those attacks, then you have something very, very powerful. Great example, by the way. Uh, okay. My favorite example is because it's so stark, and everybody knows this example, is LGBTQ. So for decades, they uh, the activism was focused around being respected for our for our difference. Mm-hmm. Right? We're here. We're queer. We'd like to say hello. And every time they gained even a little, they were beaten back with uh, defensive marriage and family values. Well, how did they win? We want to live in committed relationships. We want uh, we want to raise happy families. We want the same things you do. We're just different in this one way. And when you can say that, that's really, really powerful because if you have a sense of, if you feel a sense of commonality, and we all have people in our lives who have very different political beliefs or religious beliefs, but because of the common values we share, we're able to accept those differences in a way that we wouldn't. Uh, but when, when, you, when, you haven't, um, when you haven't built this, those common bonds, uh, to start with that difference, very difficult. So let me bring this back to the business context. Okay. Uh, another one of my favorite uh, examples is, is Paul O'Neill, who was, of course, Treasury Secretary, uh, which he was most famous for. But before that, he was the CEO of Alcoa. And mm-hmm. when he came to Alcoa, Alcoa was in serious trouble, serious financial trouble. It had been 
And this was, was a company that had printed money and hit on hard times. They brought in Paul O'Neill and they said, what's your, what's your, um, what's your plan to, to uh, save the company? What's your plan to improve the results? And he said, uh, I plan to make Alcoa the safest company in America. We're going to go for zero uh, work, zero accidents in the workplace. And people said, yeah, but we're interested in hearing your plan. <laughs> the company's losing money. And he said, sorry, you're not listening to me. Rate me on my safety record. And people thought he was nuts. But think about what that did. He went to the union and said, how? Let's talk about making it safer. And once people understood that he was really serious about workplace accidents and were working to improve it, well, if you think about it, safety, and Alcoa did not have a bad safety record, but that was essentially a proxy for uh, operational excellence. Right. You can't improve your safety record and not improve your operations. It's impossible to do. And as people were uh, coming up with all these different strategies to improve, uh, improve safety, they were improving operations at the same time. And within a few years, Alcoa was back at record pro uh, profits. Now imagine um, he went to the unions and he went to the employees and he went to the rank and file and said, I want you to help me make more money. Yeah. You're not going to have the same, but safety, who could argue against safety? So starting with that shared value, things that everybody wants, uh, that's not only a great way to get people uh, more enthusiastic about adopting the change, but to contribute to it. Okay. I get that because who wants, and if you, they don't want to contribute to it, then their personal values are suddenly at odds and they have to confront that. Like, I don't care if my neighbors or even I have safety at work. It's like, well, that's a little one hard to, hard if to swallow. If you want people to embrace the change, they need to take ownership of it. Yeah. You know, you can see people in factories taking ownership of safety. If you're asking them to take ownership of values that they don't share, it's very hard to do. But think about how most initiatives talk about change. They talk about shaking things up mm -hmm. and disrupting things. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, it's a great way to honor um, the person who's, who, who, who has the change idea. I mean, because that's why people say, look at me. I, I'm disruptive. I'm innovative. I'm that's great, but what's that doing for everybody else? Right. How, is that, how is that a value that everybody's going to share? Right. I can imagine the jokes that will come out of that one. All right, come back to this idea that change is propagated socially, not by a communications campaign. Why do you say it's that peer-to-peer -peer that's so important at getting people on board? And you're getting at this with the shared value. That's a piece of it. But what is it that's the magic about this peer-to-peer? -peer? Well, 
again, we have decades of research that we conform um, to the majority's, uh, we conform to the majority opinion. Very, very famous study done in the 50s by a guy named Solomon Ash, where yeah. they showed people lines um, and they, they went around the room. It was a room full of eight people. And as they went around the room, each and every person gave the same wrong answer. And when they got to the last one, they conformed to the majority opinion, even though it was obviously wrong. Yeah. Not all of them, but most of them. We have an incredible ability to conform to the behavior and beliefs of the people around us. That's why, I mean, you're a workplace expert. That's why every workplace has inside jokes. Yes. Um, and we also know that this effect uh, goes out to three degrees of separation. So not only our friends and our friends' friends, but the friends of our friends' friends, people we don't even know tend to influence our behavior. So majorities don't just rule, they also influence. And, that, and uh, that's how things get, get um, adopted socially. And we, we know this from a broad swath of studies. One of the most famous was done by the, uh, was done on, on the Freedom, uh, was it called the, the, not the Freedom Rides, the Freedom Summer. Right. And these were, were students who signed up, who, who, who applied to travel to Mississippi during the civil rights era and, and do very, very dangerous uh, work. And many of them were, were physically, you know, had to put up with physically intimidate, uh, intimidation. Three of them were, were actually killed. And when, when they look back at their questionnaires to see which, of, which ones usually went, which ones this, actually yeah. went through with it, it was inevitably ones that had somebody else in the program. That they had a, a, a close tie in the program. Um, many other studies as well. So we know that that people tend to adopt uh, the best indicator of things that we think and things that we do are what the people around us think and do. So that, that's again why uh, this idea of starting with a majority. Right. Three people right. in a room of five, you can expand that out. Uh, but once you're in the minority, you're going to get immediate pushback. Immediate pushback. Okay. I think you can see this if you think about your teenagers, teenage kids at home, how much they are influenced by their peer set to do something and how much they adopt the interest and concern and so on of their peer set. You see that all over everywhere. You can see that in an organization. And I think this is what you mean by culture. This is how we do things around here. And we tell stories about how we do things around here. And so therefore, even if I think it's a bad idea, I'm going to conform in order to fit in. And I think that phenomena is what you're tapping. So if we can get the peer set to make a change, then we've got the best chance at making larger scale change, which is why we create a small peer group. Right. But if, if I can, and I think it's important to think in terms of both a manager mindset and a change maker mindset. Okay. So a manager mindset is consensus driven. It's, um, it's driven by predictability and it's execution focus. Changemaker mindset is very different. It's coalition driven. Uh, you can't 
you're obviously not going to start with a consensus or else it would be status quo, yeah. not change. It, um, there's always going to be uncertainty because it's something new. And it's very exploration driven, again, because you don't really know how to do it that well yet. Something new. Right. But very much to your point, when you introduce a change from the outside, it doesn't have a peer group. Which is why it's important to, to compartmentalize it. So, so, and very much to your earlier point, you can work with three people in a group of, of 12 as long as you, you, you leave the other nine alone. Yeah. And you're not forcing it on them. Once you have nine in a group of 12, then the last three, you can, <laughs> you can operate <laughs> a little bit. a little more pressure. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think it'll apply its own pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Craig, let's shift. I love this discussion and we've covered many of these, but I want to make sure we hit your 10 points or 10 principles for transformational change. So to the heart and soul of the book, Cascades. So we've already talked about this one, but I want to give you a moment to speak on it. Revolutions don't begin with a slogan. They begin with a cause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you look at any big change, I mean, we spend so much time when we're talking about change. And so much of, of the traditional change management work is focused on, uh, around communication strategy. Um, that's not going to determine anything. People, and, and, and we know from, from research, is that um, giving people awareness, desire, knowledge, those things are not going to result in changes in practice, which... You, Change is never about uh, ideas. Nobody cares about your ideas. They care about the problems you can solve for them. Which is why something like Agile um, or Lean Manufacturing or whatever it is, you don't start with the Agile Manifesto. You don't start with the idea. You start by actually identifying a problem you can solve with it. Right? Okay. Actually solving a problem that is meaningful, that people care about, that's a cause. Okay. All right. A problem people care about. I love it. All right. Transformation fails because people oppose it, not because they don't understand it. They don't want to do it. We're back to the same thing. Just understanding, just persuasion, logic persuasion is not going to tackle the five forms of resistance that you identified at the very beginning. You know, and, and people, every time I sit down with a, with a new group, new organization, you can, you can feel the entire room breathe out. It's not on me to persuade Somebody. It's not about persuasion. I don't have to. People think once once other people understand the idea, they'll immediately adopt it. Hmm. No, they won't. It's not your job. That's not going to. If if they don't see it, they don't see it. If they don't want it, they don't want it. Okay. Focus on people who actually do want it, want it to work. And again, get out of the business of selling the idea into the business of selling a success. Yeah, that's back to our cause petition. All right. Now we talked about this one too. Be explicit about your values because you've talked about not focusing on the differentiating values when I'm talking to the larger numbers of people, but focusing on the shared values. Is that why it's so important to be explicit about values? That's part of it. 
But there's mm -hmm. another reason that's just as important. And, and again, whenever I sit down with a new group, we're all, one of the first things we do is talk about values. What are your values? But then what do they cost you? Mm -hmm. How do they constrain you? Because if, if you don't expect to incur costs or constraints, that's not a value. That's a platitude. It's just a, just a bunch of stuff you want. And again, go back to Paul O'Neill, valuing safety. How, do you, how are you valuing safety? Well, that's going to be my first job of how, how I measure it. That's, that's what made it credible. Another one of my favorite examples is Lou Gerstner at IBM, where he said, we're going to value the customer. And we're, we're going to group we're going to be willing to forego revenue on every sale. That's the only reason. And I've, and I've interviewed dozens of top executives from IBM at that period. All of them mentioned that. If it wasn't for that, IBM wouldn't be in business today. Okay. All right. So know what my values are, because those are the things that are going to cost and constrain me and be explicit about that, not my laundry list of wish things. All right. Number four, you say, Resist the urge to engage those who attack and undermine you. We've talked about that because if you engage with them, you end up just getting digging in the resistance. But you also said listen to them because that helps you identify your shared values. Yeah, you want to keep your nodes open. You don't want to create your own echo chamber so no information gets in. Um, you don't want to engage with them for for a couple of reasons. Engaging with skeptics is fine. People who have legitimate questions, but it's that sort of other group who are really working to undermine it, undermine you in ways that are dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. Engaging with them is very unlikely to change their mind and very likely to just um, frustrate and exhaust you. But there's a third reason. We talked about the conference room, but um, if you leave them alone and they see you gaining traction, almost always uh, they will lash out and overreach and discredit themselves. And when I, it's, it's amazing whenever I, I'm talking to an audience of uh, change professionals or people who've led initiatives, I always get a couple of people coming up to me afterwards and saying, you mean that's a normal thing? I thought that was just something strange that happened to us. But if they see you gaining traction, they will lash out. And if you're quiet about it, if you're not pushing it on them, they, they usually don't, aren't going to attack you until you've passed that critical 20, 25%. All right, fine. Then you said, you know, focus on building local minorities, a majority, excuse me, local which, majority. which you've said already is three people in a room of five, you can be the majority, three people in a room of 12, you're going to be the minority. So you're going to just dig in resistance. Yeah. So leave those other seven, <laughs> leave those other seven alone, right? Right. Um, leave them alone. Don't, don't which, start the resistance earlier than you need to. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. And then number six, you say shift from, we've talked about this one, differentiating values to shared values, because shared values are what bring other people in. 
as opposed to the differentiating, which they say, oh, I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'm not want to be a part of that. Shared yeah, but values. You don't have to hide the differentiating value. Okay. You don't mm-hmm. have to you don't have to hide the fact that there's an agile manifesto or that there's these lean manufacturing principles that seem a little strange to people. You don't need to hide any of those things. That's just not what you're leading with. Right. Okay. So lead with a common values. We've talked about that. And then you said mobilize people to influence institutions. Now this one we haven't talked about. Number seven. No, no, no. So um People think change is about mobilization. It's why um, every time people want to create change in America, they have some sort of march on Washington. And it never works. I mean, the first march on Washington was the women's suffrage procession in 1913. It was an absolute disaster. Um, It's worked once of all the times. Um, Because putting people out in the streets is, isn't going to do anything. The only thing that can actually change a, uh, bring about change is an institution or people with institution who wield institutional power. You're mobilizing the people to influence those institutions. So another way of looking at it is you always start with your targets, not your tactics. People ask me, oh, well, this, can you do this? Can you do a hackathon? Can you do a, um, you know, uh, can you do social media? Whatever it is. And I always ask the same thing. Tell me what the institutional targets are. That's where you start, not with the tactic. So there's, there's essentially two stories about change. The first one is a hero's journey. Um, where there's some alternative future state. And if we're good and we're pure and we do the right things, we will attain that alternative future state. So in this telling, change is largely internal. Like mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker must had to conquer himself before he could face Darth Vader. Okay. And much like Star Wars, that story is a fantasy. That's huh. not how change works. Huh? The way change works, the the truth about change is that it is a strategic conflict between that alternative future state and the status quo. The status quo depends on sources of power to stay in place. You remove those sources of power, it will fall. Now, those sources of power are always institutions or people who wield institutional power. Uh, They can be customer groups. They can be divisions, division heads within an organization. Um, Media is always one that uh, can be educational institutions, regulatory bodies, uh, local governments, federal governments, regulatory agencies, trade unions, professional associations, all all sorts of different institutions. If you can mobilize people to influence those institutions, you can bring change about. Quick example, if you want to change education, there are parents, teachers, students, they can be mobilized. Um, There are also teachers unions, school boards, um, parents associations. You mobilize the first to influence the second. 
Got it. So the real truth of change, if I re-paraphrase this, is that it's a conflict of a future state of being with the status quo, our current state of being. The status quo is held by the institutions, the customer groups, the specific division heads, the media, the regulators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So is the future state, by the way. So There's is the always institutions or sources of power that are supporting the status quo. There's others that will support the future state, and there's some on the fence. Right. You need to identify those sources of power, and then that's a bit of a longer conversation of how you build your strategies around. Them. Right. But th- right. That, those are the essential building blocks of, of a change strategy. Right. So, but the important is to focus on mobilizing people so that they are influencing the institutions so that we have the best chance of moving the staff. The other way around. You focus on what your targets are. Right. What your then I mobilize people to influence. And that's, and, and that's how you design your tactics. Okay. All right, let's go to number eight. Scale change through empowerment. Right. So um, the, one of the hardest things about change is we need to allow people to embrace it for their own reasons, which are often different than ours. Mm-hmm. One of the things we, we work with, one of the scaling strategies, is called a co-optable resource. So what can you give people that they can co-opt for their own purposes that will help bring the change about. Favorite example, TEDx. Yeah. Thousands of people putting in millions of dollars worth of, I mean, there's 10,000, I think 14,000 TEDx events uh, a year. Those are all people who are promoting the TED conference, uh, but they're doing it for their own reasons. They're putting on their TED event for their own reasons, not for TED, although TED is benefiting from it. So anytime you can build a resource that people can adopt for their own reasons and take ownership, uh, that's going to help scale change. Right. Okay, Greg, there are two more. I'm just going to mention them. So everybody gets the final full story, survive victory and transformation is always a journey, never about a destination. We're not going to talk about either of those, but for that, I'd highlight- Can I just talk very, very quickly about surviving victory? Because it's- 30 seconds. I can do it in 15. Never bet your change on any particular person or technology or program or policy. You always want to base it on the shared value. And that's how you survive the initial initial victory. Base on the shared value. We're right back to the shared value. Okay. Greg, I think one of the things that makes me clear about this one is A, places where I have failed in helping a client move a change forward, because I think I haven't followed these principles as well. And the second thing is it's really crystal clear to me how our thinking about change needs to shift if we're really serious about getting change um, moved at scale throughout our organizations. So my guest today, Greg Sattel, founder of Change OS. The book we're talking about is Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. Greg, if people want to find you, where should they go? GregSattel.com or uh, my blog is DigitalTonto.com. And of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Greg, thanks for being here. What a great, fascinating conversation and a great book too, by the way. Um, If you've liked our episode, please like us on your favorite podcast provider and certainly join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.